Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Be seated. Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Sweet mercy of God, we've made it into another one of these delightful chapters. One that you've probably either heard set to music or uh, probably perhaps some of these verses you might even have memorized. Isaiah chapter 40, this is God himself speaking to you even this day. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured this spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? The craftsman cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for sweet passages even after so many difficult ones, and we pray, O God, that you would give us faith even this day. For Christ's sake, amen. One of the the great lost arts in our current cultural moment, not arts of painting or music or things like that, though I'm sure those would probably fall true in some fashion as well, But increasingly, we're noticing the the loss of the ability, both individually and corporately, to construct an argument. Actually, to, to really kind of reason our way through an argument at all. We increasingly find ourselves in a culture where it comes time to construct an argument and Realistically, what follows is usually some sort of kind of litany or diatribe about the person's feelings. 
It makes me happy that this is taking place, or it makes me sad that this is taking place. It's really just an explanation, really, of how we feel. It's amazing, we, we notice this kind of all over, you'll, you'll watch this happen even weirdly in the presidential debates as we're now into primary season, that wonderful gift. How rare is it where we, we hear an actual argument constructed? Here is a, a premise, let me give you reasons why that premise is true. And why you should believe it. Interestingly, though, that's exactly what's happening in chapter 40. The Lord is going to make a statement, and then he's going to give kind of four things that follow up on that statement to challenge the reader and the listener to believe. Now, uh, I guess the really, (laughs) the happiness or sadness of that reality comes down to what that initial statement is. What is it that our God is arguing about? And I I don't mean that being argumentative. I mean, he's creating an actual logical construction for why we should believe something that he says. Realistically, what is he saying? Verses one and two are really the starting point for this entire chapter. It's the starting point uh, for this entire sermon. Comfort. Comfort. My people, says your God. Now, this is a really marked change from where we've been in the book of Isaiah. So far, running the the reoccurring theme through the book of Isaiah has been this destruction of God's people because they have been so committed to their sin. Uh, They have been unlistening. They have been unyielding. uh, They have not trusted the Lord. They've looked for help at foreign uh, powers, foreign uh, allies. They've They've not been faithful in any way. In the midst of a book that's really largely thus far been about the destruction that follows sin, destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, eventually destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. Now we see really what God's plan was all along. What he was doing, why was he using the Assyrians? Why is he going to be using the Babylonians? What is God's plan all along? Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Now that's the command, it's an imperative. It's this is what you are to do. Isaiah, prophets of God, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Give her the words of of God. Give her the encouragement of God. Give her the great reality that awaits her. All right, so the command is to comfort. We like that. The way that he's told to do it, it actually gives tone, is in tenderness and kind of imploring, crying it out and, and, and convincing her to believe. So what is it? Well, to be that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that her sins have been resolved. Now, this would be kind of the really good news in the midst of a bad book so far. Judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment for 
sin after sin after sin after sin. I mean, really, if you were just kind of paying attention the last two weeks as we dealt with Hezekiah, one of kind of, one of the better kings at this point, I guess, who's like, meh, as long as it's not bothering me, it's fine. Destruction can happen to Israel just as long as it's not on my watch, just as long as there's peace and security while I'm king. I'm going to be selfish. It's all about me. The reoccurring constancy of sin And yet here, there's a a massive tonal change in the book. There's a a massive kind of alteration in where we're headed. The Lord brings comfort to his people and brings comfort that their sins are resolved. That their sins are forgiven. Now, there's a, a challenge with that is that I think kind of out of all the things that God says, that our sins are forgiven is perhaps one of the most difficult to believe. It's, it's one of those things that's so hard to actually kind of emotionally wrestle our way through because it's completely invisible. It's not tangible in any way. I can't kind of wrap my hands around, I can't grab it, I I can't smell it, I can't perceive it. It, It's a thing that God says that I have to believe with with no sight. Again, it's the same idea that's taken up in the ministry of Jesus later where, you know, the the gentleman, the the sick man is kind of brought to him and he says, go, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, "What? what? What is that about? And he's like, which is easier? Forgive sins or to heal a person? But since you can't believe that, I'll, I'll heal him as well. And then he says, take up and go. And the guy gets up and runs out. And they're like, oh, now we can understand that physically he was healed. But the physical portrait is what helps me understand the spiritual reality. It's so hard to believe that sins are forgiven. Now, the reality of the matter is that this is one of those kind of conversations that you're like, well, pastor, I believe that my sins are forgiven. Okay, good, great. I'm sure you sleep very well every night. I'm sure when your head hits your pillow every night, you don't have those replays of mistakes that you made 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 80 years ago. I'm sure you you have no struggles with uh, the the guilt and shame that uh, kind of come with the life that you've lived at parts of your life. I'm sure you have no problem with the the joy that kind of bubbles up from a person who lives a truly forgiven life. I'm sure you have no struggles with that at all. In fact, I think you could probably argue, amongst many things, <laughs> the fact that we don't genuinely and truthfully believe the promise of verse 2 is perhaps one of the greatest things that hinders our spiritual development, our growth, and our kind of joyful bubbling over of soul. The promise that our warfare is ended, that the Lord has done it. The promise that our sins are forgiven, that the Lord has done it. The promise that he has finished and fully resolved all of our sins. Now, this is a sermon that is certainly for all of us. We all need to pay particular attention, but especially For those of you that wrestle kind of one of two ways, 
Some of you in the room, I've been your pastor long enough to know that you, you bear amazing amounts of shame. You carry shame with you all of the time. You feel guilty all of the time to the point where it, it impacts your daily living, the guilt and shame that you carry with you. This sermon is for you particularly. Or others of you in the room that your kind of Christianity is, eh, it's room temperature. Right, it's a, it's a glass of water that you got out last night. Maybe you had ice in it. It was very pleasant, very you know, delicious to drink. And you left it on your bedside table and it sat all night and just became kind of blah. If you find your Christianity in that same kind of condition, this sermon is for you. To challenge you to think about the reality that God is promising that your sins for, are forgiven and that he is the victor. Now, uh, again, easy for us to say that sins are forgiven. Easy for us to kind of talk about that, but to not you know, really kind of contemplate the, the reality of why. And the interesting thing is that's really what the Lord then jumps into. He doesn't just promise that he's going to provide safety for his people. Now, it, it's not ultimately here as a national safety. This is a, a safety that's ultimately realized in his church. But the promise of safety and sin being resolved, it's argued by three separate voices. This is intriguing, a wonderful literary device that the Lord uses as he introduces, and we don't really know who the voices are, we just know that they suddenly take voice in the text to, to call our attention to the structure of God's argument. The first voice, verses three through five, begins to cry out. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken and it's an interesting thing. It's kind of mysterious in some sense. The first voice begins crying, how, how do we know that, that God is for us? How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that he's bringing about our peace? How do we know that he's forgiving our sins or has forgiven our sins? How do we know? Well, verses three and four are really, I, I guess, a logistical explanation. <laughs> that the ground is made ready for the arrival of some kind of form of transport. The illustration I had in my head as I was thinking through this was uh, the way that the ground would be prepared for uh, train tracks or a locomotive, right? You, uh, trains don't do really well on bumpy territory, right? They don't do very well on bumpy ground. So when you, you make space for a train to go through, you put train tracks, it has to be unbelievably level. 
So the low parts have to be brought up and the high parts have to be brought down so that the train can travel through on uh, flat ground. In fact, actually, um, there are some uh, parts of the Carolinas where they didn't do a very good job of that. There's one famous university where the train comes in, comes down into the, the campus and then kind of goes up the far side and the students used to be famous for greasing the tracks. And if the train was exceptionally heavy, it would go down into the valley and get stuck because there was not enough friction to get out. It couldn't get purchase enough on the wheels to pull itself out and the train would get stuck and the students would laugh and then have to hide. What's being made here and being kind of hinted at is that there's being, in some sense, kind of a road prepared. And all of the things that would get in the way, all of the things that would limit the arrival of this kind of train, this transport, whatever it is, all of those things are being removed so that the special transport can make it into the presence of God's people. Verse five tells us what that special transport is. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, uh, this is a a magnificent thing for a people that are not completely entirely jaded. (laughs) Uh, for people who are not raised on Photoshop and uh, things like that, who've not you know, kind of been tainted by a, a multi-billion dollar uh, Hollywood uh, or marketing industry where we, we don't really see glory in anything. But for a people in which glory was a foreign concept, where profound beauty was rarely engaged, where overwhelming grandeur was a thing that you would remember for the rest of your life. It's this kind of introductory idea of how do we know that God is for me? He's paving the way where his glory and goodness and greatness and grandeur will step inside the created order so that we can see it. so that we can know it. So that his glory no longer would exist simply in the heavens. So that his glory would no longer exist outside the created order, but it would come inside the created order so that men and women, boys and girls like you and me, we'd be able to see it and know that he's God. And now, not just in a, in a general way where the created or proclaims God's greatness just in its very kind of creative nature, but specifically in redemption, that his glory would come inside creation in redemption. Which is weird to think that this would later be fulfilled. <laughs> with a poor Jewish woman carrying a child that was hers but not her husband's, prepping to give birth in a way that would have been very kind of complicated and confusing after the angels had heralded that she was carrying the very Son of God. And that when that child would arrive, poor, very poor, No honor based upon his human standing, not recognized by kings and queens, not recognized by emperors. Instead, when that baby would arrive, the angels would announce him. 
The very stars would announce him. That the glory of the Lord would be revealed in the arrival of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not outside creation, but inside it. That the King of kings and Lord of lords would put on creation forever. A thing to marvel at, that, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, would at some point in time put on time and put on matter and put on humanity a thing that he will retain forever. Again, reminding you, your good Christology. He was always the Son. He's always God. But there was a time in which he was not human. There was a time in which he was not incarnate, but yet he put that on and will keep that on fully human, inside the created order, fully God. A proof that God loves you and is protecting you, that he forgives sins, that he indeed loves his people. And in fact, actually, in the language of the New Testament, it all happened in the fullness of time. In such a way that everything was perfectly ordered, perfectly planned, perfectly executed in the fullness of time. What a wonderful thing. You, you wonder if God loves you. You wonder if the forgiveness of sins is real. You have proof. His name is Jesus. Lived, died, raised, ascended, now seated at the right hand of the Father, bearing you with him. That's so important to remember that he bears you with him. You're united with him. So when he's seated at the right hand of the Father, received as a, a blessed child of God, you are seated in him at the right hand of the Father, received as a blessed child of God. And voice cries. Argument number one. <laughs> the glory of the Lord will arrive. It's proof that God loves his people, that he's working for them, cares for them, redeems them. The second voice cries. Verses six through eight. Perhaps the verses we might know the most for some of us. The voice says, cry, it's a command. Isaiah, what do I I cry? What do you mean to say? All flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. It's very lovely. It's very beautiful. But the grass withers and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. So, I mean, this is kind of, an, again, he's building an argument here. Uh-oh, how will I know that God's uh, truth is true? How do I know that God's promise of peace is true? How do I know that my sins are forgiven? And the answer is, is in many ways problematic. Look, well, if you have to deal with people, it's not ultimately reliable. 
If your answer is, is resting on humanity, humanity is unreliable. Because at best, humanity is beautiful and brilliant and marvelous for a moment, and then we die. At best, people are fantastic and, and kind of profound and have these moments of brilliance and grandeur, and then they die. At best, it's a brief short span at best. The grass withers, it's helpful and beautiful and wonder the, wonderful, the flower fades. Again, one of those sweet niceties that God gives. But the grass withers and the flower fades because the Lord is the only one who endures. People do not, flesh does not. But verse eight, the grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Argument number one, God's glory arrives inside creation, therefore you can trust his promises. Argument number two, the word of the Lord will stand forever. In fact, actually, this is really the marvelous thing to think about. Not only will the word of the Lord stand forever, it is in fact that very word that would step inside creation in the first voice. Who is it that would step inside creation? Who is it that would bring the glory of God to mankind? Who is it that would redeem for himself a people? It would be the very word incarnate. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God And the word was God. Christ, the word. The grass withers, the flower fades. You will pass away, I will pass away. Our days on this mortal coil are limited. Sure, we will be resurrected, but resurrected unto what? However, our God and his word will never pass away. His word will stand forever. I mean, if you really want to kind of be kind of snarky about it, we've all, I'm sure, at some point had, you know, uh, kind of the criticisms of uh, those where they used to say, uh, the joke was, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. And then you'd have Christians that would kind of be snarky and be like, well, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse or things like that. And you can't take it with you. If we're going to be really kind of obnoxiously pointed about it, you do have a couple of possessions that you can take with you to the other side. Your Bible. I mean, you don't really think about it from that perspective, but the Word of God goes with you. And right? it goes with you into the grave. It stands forever. It will pass into the life to come. You think about it like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not going to take my dog with me into heaven. Sorry. I'm not going to take my house with me to heaven. Sorry. Not going to take you know my car, my clothes, or any of my possessions. But when I go to the life to come, I will take my Bible with me. Okay, not this printed one. I mean, it might be two million years from now when that happens. Who knows? These atoms will probably, you know, been broken down and turned into other things and been food that people ate. I don't know. But the words written in this book, or they're a thing I take with me into the life to come because they endure forever. 
they will not pass away. And this is a thing I think probably many of us have never thought about. (laughs) Your Bible goes with you to heaven so that when you get to the life to come, okay, can we just momentarily have just a little bit of a discourse on the theology of heaven? Some of you incorrectly assume that once you die, you get infinite knowledge. Right? There, there is this kind of warm-hearted southern thing that I don't know really where it came from, but the idea that the second you die, you have all of the answers. That is wrong. Very wrong. Because having all of the answers is inherently a thing that belongs to God, not to mankind. So when you get to the life to come, what happens is you get to learn, but you get to learn without the curse. And that's going to be really fun. Right? Some of us have real profound effects from the curse. Like, oh, learning is hard. Some of us, learning not quite as challenging. But when we get to the life to come, we get to learn without the curse. We get to learn with no sin. We get to learn with no negative struggle. We get to learn with all of the blessings and benefits of the full enjoying of God forever. And where do you start learning in the life to come? Your Bible. The presence of God. His word that endures forever. I think sometimes we we think of it almost like I only need to know this book while I'm alive here and then as soon as I'm dead I can kind of put it away and move on because then I get to know God for real. And it's like, no, this is how you know him for real. You take it with you. I mean, again, not the exact printed pages, but you understand my point, hopefully. Glory inside creation, the word of God that endures forever. 9 through 11, a change of voice here. Now the, the song, almost perhaps of a choir, is taken up. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Sing about it. It's so happy. It's a, it's a, a joyful thing. It's God's promise. It's delightful. Sing about it. Don't be afraid. Sing about it. Behold to the city of Judah. Say, this is your God. Behold, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He, he, he comes in power. He's a powerful God. In fact, he's, he's so powerful that he's able to do, and the list is pretty comprehensive, though quick. His arm is so mighty that he's able to reward those that love him. His arm is so mighty he's able to destroy those who stand before him. His arm is so mighty he can gather his people to him. And his arm is so mighty that he can hold them tenderly. Kind of a wonderful illustration on that one is uh, if you ever had a friend who was like you know, one of those just pieces of human that God has made that are absolutely enormous. Like one of those people is just absolutely gigantic. But then when they hold like a little baby, it's almost comedic, isn't it? 
right? Six, six, 325 pounds, massive. And then they, like holding a child that just, it's like it doesn't fit and they have to, they have to be so tender because they're too big. It's like, I, I love that, that kind of picture of the Lord. It's like he's so powerful and so strong and so mighty that, that he gathers his people to him and then holds them so tenderly and so gently and so kindly. It's an argument that he's constructing. You want to know that your sins are forgiven. Here's your proof. Jesus stepped inside time and space. Jesus is the word incarnate and God himself, the triune God, is powerful. Here's your proof. Now, the reality is that should be enough for most of us, right? We should be able to be like, oh, Jesus, yay! And our hearts just soar, soar with, with joy. It should be enough and we should have kind of praises that are coming out of our mouths and we can't really figure out how to stop it. Some of us, honestly, we should be a whole lot less grumpy because our sins are forgiven. However, unfortunately, some of us, that's not enough. And we've had the three voices kind of crying out these ideas to help us think through it. But then it it changes a little bit. And it reads almost like we've left the book of Isaiah and we've entered into the end of the book of Job almost. It's almost like the Lord enters the chat, so to speak. He begins to speak for himself and now he begins to argue. His argument here is gentle, but very firm. Very firm. He is the incomparable Creator God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you? I think not. Who has marked off the the size of the heavens with a ruler? Have you? I think not. Who has enclosed all of the dust of the earth in a measure? Who has functionally counted all of the grains of sand on the planet? Who has weighed the mountains in scales? Who has put the hills on a balance? Have you? I think not. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or even been able to calculate the extent of his wisdom? Have you? I think not. Did God have to consult you when he created Did he have to consult you when he he made the plan of redemption? Did he have to have your input or approval when he decided to forgive you? I I think not. Did, Did he need you to explain the world to him? Did the Lord be, was he kind of like, well, I think I kind of understand it, but if only I could talk to Michael, it would be clear. I think not. Now, on a side note there, remember that's how God is with your problems. He understands them in totality. It's not like he doesn't get it. (laughs) When you're having a bad time of it and you're like, well, nobody understands how I feel. It is amazing the frequency where people imply that if they don't say it outright. Nobody understands how I feel. Does does God need you to 
clue him in on that? Is that something he doesn't understand yet? No, I, I, th- I think he does. Does the Lord, verse 14, does he need you to teach him what justice looks like? Does he need you to teach him what it means to be fair? No, I think not. Or maybe this verse 15, how about, how about maybe the nations are so powerful that he has to kind of figure out how to barter some sort of bargain, some sort of peace between the nations because some nations are so powerful. You know what? Actually, now that we have like nuclear bombs out on the planet, maybe he's got to figure out, kind of negotiate some sort of nuclear kind of arms system. You know what? In fact, actually, everybody's got enough nuclear bombs, mutually assured destruction. That's what God's using, right? No, I, I think not. The nations do not stand in front of him. In fact, actually, should he wish it, even a nation would not be a large enough offering should he wish it. Now, that right there is a statement of scale that is disturbing to me. That if he were going to deal with people as their sins deserve, an entire nation is not a large enough offering. If you've, depending on what parts of the internet you've been on and such, in the last handful of months, there's been a, a number of discussions and debates about uh, the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And to think of cities paying for the war that their country had started. To think of innocents and children passing away in the blink of an eye because of a war that their nation had started. And been kind of, in parts of our country, a very difficult conversation taking place about that to say, well, is a city a big enough payment for a crime like that? Or is it too high? It's too, interestingly, the Lord's like, you want to talk about sin? A nation's not a big enough payment. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing. They're emptiness. They're, they're, they're not even a conversation point for when God's plan is put into practice. He does what he wishes, how he wishes, to whom in whatever way he wishes, for he is the mighty God. Or maybe you'll compare him to the other false gods that we like to worship. Now, sometimes when we're honest, at least we uh, acknowledge what we're worshiping, and at that point you have verses 19 and 20 which make fun of it. You worship a, a false god, a thing that cannot move, a thing that cannot act. We are perhaps a bit more sophisticated and sneaky in our sin and that we tend to, I suspect, worship ourselves more than anything else. If we're gonna be candid, really, our greatest idol currently is just probably the mirror You want to see what your idol looks like? (laughs) Go into your bathroom, hit the lights on, and look just above the sink. That's where your idol resides, staring back at you. An idol that's useless before the Lord, for he is mighty. He's the mighty God. And I love that verse 22, again, it's an effort to, to use a linguistic tool to teach a sense of scale. 
He is the God who sits above the earth. He sits outside the created order. He sits outside of creation. He's not confined by time. He's not confined by space. He's not confined by matter. He's not confined by energy. He's not confined by resources. And what are the inhabitants of creation like before him? Well, for illustration purposes, it's like grasshoppers. I mean, realistically, how much is a grasshopper going to frustrate my plans? Not a lot. I mean, he could have picked roaches or something that would have been, I guess, a bit more, kind of, but they're grasshoppers. Who cares? It's a grasshopper. Like nothing before him. He's the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He's the one who, who organizes the entire created order. There is nothing in creation that can foil his plan, including the devil and including you. Twenty-five. Who do you want to compare me to? Now, again, this is at this point is getting personal and intense. He's he's in our face, so to speak. Who do you want to compare me to? That I should be like him, says God. Who who are you going to compare me, the living God, to? Look around. Who made this? Who made all of the things that you can see? Who made the atoms and the molecules? Who made the trees and the living things? Who created? Who's going to be like me, he says. Who can showcase their greatness and their power at any given moment? Me. Now, verses 27, I love this. You think you can hide from God? You think this great God does not know who you are or what you have done? Do you think he doesn't know who you are? And then 28 rounds out where we started. Now listen, this is after he has just kind of in some sense kind of emotionally undone the listener. I personally think the end of Job is some of the most emotionally difficult passages in the entirety of the Bible where the listener is just in some sense unmade verbally in front of God. And look at how he ends this after having kind of just torn the listener to pieces in the best of ways. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So this is the mighty God, the big God. He does not faint He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is the great and mighty God. This is the big God. And what does he do? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's amazing that he's just built this tremendous case for how big he is. And then he says, and what am I doing with all of this power? I'm blessing you and you and you and you. I'm taking care of you. I'm forgiving you. 
and redeeming you. I'm sanctifying you and equipping you. I'm building up. I'm watching over you. I am your God and I am caring for you in a way that you will never fully comprehend, but in the way that I am using the fullness of my power. That's the thing, again, I I think we, we just so many times, we forget. He's using all of his power for you. Maybe one of those great illustrations we have in life, if uh, you've ever spent any amount of time around a, a little toddler, right? They're, they're at the point where they're able to get mobile enough to really, really hurt themselves, right? The littlest of babies, in some sense, they're kind of some, some way safe. Like you put them there and you come back and they're still there. But once they get mobile, oh man, that is a different day, isn't it? Like you put them there and you come back and they're going down the stairs or climbing in the dishwasher or who knows where they are. And so much of parenting a toddler, working in the nursery with a toddler is, is, is figuring out how to use all of your faculties as an adult to make sure that child does not accidentally kill themselves, having no idea that that's what they would do. Right? That's, that's so much of what parenting is in dealing with a toddler. The toddler has no idea. All of the dangers around them, they have no idea that it's not a good idea to poke the dog in the eye. They have no idea that it's not a good idea to shove their fingers in those little holes on the side of the wall. They have no idea that it's not a good thing to do, you know, play on the bricks next to the hearth and, uh, where the uh, fireplace is. They have no idea. And so much of parenting is taking all of your resources to kind of marshal them to make sure that that kid grows up and survives long enough to learn. And it's interesting that in this, God is saying, look, I do that to you. The mighty power that I've had to create the entirety of the world is being applied to protect you and to care for you and to watch over you and to forgive you. Dear friends, there are some of us that even as we walk from this place are going to be tempted to think either that God's not doing a very good job or that's true for other people, but it's not for me. And the reality of the matter is that is very similar to a toddler complaining when they have no understanding of what mom and dad are doing. Too often we, much like the toddler, throw ourselves on the ground, flail our arms and cry and fuss and pout because we don't understand that mom and dad are taking care of us. And I would lovingly say, if you're one of those people that's in the middle of the tantrum right now, the Lord loves you and he's taking care of you And I would respectfully and humbly say, you're acting a bit childish. Now, the good news is, I think most of us have been there at some point, and the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he forgives sins. Even that sin. May it be you spend a little time contemplating that and ask forgiveness, and that his spirit would change you. Why? 
Because the Lord loves his people. And he's watching over you and blessing you even this day. Father, we thank you that you don't just let us be, but you invade our emotional space, you invade our lives, you invade so much of who we are, and you invade it with mercy. Uh, We pray um, with the great saint of old, uh, help us in our unbelief. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing number 87.